Amen. And ushers, go ahead. I'm just really enjoying that visual of, of the picture of my husband running around and rounding up 22 turkeys as they run around and all of that kind of stuff. I'm going to enjoy that visual for a while. It's not what happened, but it's a fun, it's a fun visual in my head. Um, it's a good day, yes? It's a good day. And we are in, mark it up, we're in the very last scripture, the very last passage of the, of the series that we have been doing in Mark It Up. And I don't know about you, but this has been the longest series I have ever participated in in my entire life. Is there anyone else that goes, yeah, it's been, it's been a long, it's been a good one, but it's been a long one. I, I put on social media this morning that uh, we were finishing up the Mark series and Pastor Jonathan, who was the pastor here before I got here, for those of you that are newer than me. He said, wow, it's been quite a journey through the Market Up series because he's the one that started it. And then another pastor in Montreal contacted me, and I guess he, he spoke here at some point last summer. And he said, I spoke on Mark as part of that series last summer. Is this the same series? I said, yes, it is. And it has been a great series. And I'm really grateful that we've taken the time to go through the book of Mark and really look at every single piece of it. There's been no skimming over it, no just skipping over different parts. We've actually gone through every single verse. And the point of this series has been, a great part of the point of this series has been to show Jesus as a real man, as a regular guy, because we all know that he's 100% God, that Jesus is the son of God and he's divine and all of that stuff. But we've also seen that he's a guy who gets tired and he's a guy who makes jokes sometimes. And he's a guy who throws verbal punches every now and then or takes the religious leaders down a notch when they need to be taken down just a little bit. And he's a, he's a regular guy. He's both God and human. And it's important that we see that because it's important to see the complexities and to understand the reality of who Jesus was because it's just way too easy to label Jesus and to stereotype him into just this, you know, he's gentle Jesus or he's just nice Jesus. Or somebody else might stereotype and put a label on and say, well, he's just religious Jesus. But he's not. He's, he's God, but he's man also and, and complex and real and, and down to earth and all of those things. And so today is the end of the whole thing. And in true Mark style, it is going to end so abruptly and it's going to end without any warning at all. Now, I need to take a little side trip here because I'd rather just put something out on the table than have some of you discuss something over lunch and say, how come she didn't mention this, okay? So I'm just going to blurt it all out here. So come with me on this little, dis- this little side trip. I want to talk about the ending of Mark, the ending of Mark's gospel, because the ending of Mark is a little bit disputed. And so various Bibles are going to have a little note in them. And it depends on which Bible you have and which translation you have or whether it's printed or digital or whatever. And there's going to be a point in this chapter on Mark 16 where lots of you are going to see a little note that says some, something like, the oldest manuscripts don't include this. And there's going to be a little note before a part of Mark chapter 16. And I want to explain this because every now and then you're going to see somebody is going to put a claim out, whether it's on Facebook or on Twitter, or they're going to come to you and tell you over coffee, and they're going to say some some crazy claim that sounds a little bit scary. It's going to be something like, you know, nobody even knows what the original Bible said. It's been around for over 2,000 years, and you see these parts where there's disputed bits, and there's different translations, and, and it's all been translated so many times, you can't even know, and nobody can really know if what the Bible says today is what the Bible originally said. And somebody's going to say that to you, and I just want you to know, that's just not true. 
That is just not true. And I want to explain this a little bit because there's a whole lot of scholarship that can actually verify the veracity and the authenticity of Scripture. And whether you're talking about, you know, monks, ancient monks who considered it their life's work to copy every single letter with precise accuracy, or you're talking about the number of ancient copies of scripture that are available, there's, there's just all kinds of scholarship that has gone into over the centuries into keeping scripture pure. And there are a number of, of scholarly premises that help to evaluate this. And this is not just about the Bible. This is about any kind of ancient literature. There's there's a premise that says um, the older, if you're evaluating ancient literature and you have different copies of it, the oldest copy is likely to be the one that's most accurate. That makes sense, right? Because if changes are going to happen, they're going to happen over time. And the more recent ones are going to be the ones that might. And so if you're looking for accuracy, you go back to the oldest copies that you can find and make sure that you're lining up with that. Does that make sense? And then there's also a premise that says you go by the number of copies that are available and you take all of these ancient copies and if like, if like a hundred of them say one thing and two of them say something slightly different, you're going to assume that the hundred are probably the ones that have it right and that the two are, are a little bit of an aberration. And so that's a principle in, in evaluating ancient literature. And another premise then is to find out what the early church fathers had to say about the scripture because it took a while for scripture to be compiled and actually be canonized and be considered scripture. And so the early church fathers and what they had to say is not part of scripture, but they were there or they were there soon after and they, they, were, they were fresher to the story and they knew um, the politics and the stories that, and the circumstances that would have gone on around trying to go what is right and what belongs and what is slightly inaccurate. They knew all that. And so they talk about that sometimes and we have records that talk about some of that that we reference. And so there's a disputed part in Mark 16, which I'm going to read to you right now, very fairly quickly, because we're not going to really spend much time on it. But it's a disputed piece, and we're not going to include it in the series. I just wanted to be upfront about it. But here's, here's what it says, Mark chapter 16. I think it starts in verse 9, after that little note in your Bibles. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they wouldn't believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they didn't believe them. And afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And you say to me, well, Patty, what's wrong with that? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that scripture. It sounds good. It's, it's pretty close. And, and I would kind of agree with you. There's nothing, nothing particularly contrary in there to anything that the rest of the gospel writers have said. There's nothing contrary to what we've seen about who Jesus is and how he acts. And so, so what's the issue? So here's the thing. Here's what happened. 
For a good long time, this last part of Mark that I just read you was included, but it was always a little bit controversial because some copies had it and some copies didn't. And then, of the ancient copies, and then some older copies were discovered of Scripture. And in those copies, that part of Mark was not there. And so, the, and the copies of Scripture that seemed the most reliable for various reasons, they didn't include it. And, and also, scholars of ancient literature noticed that when you got to verse 9 in Mark chapter 16, there was a real distinct difference in the style of writing and in the way that Mark usually wrote. And they said, well, this doesn't look like Mark wrote it. It doesn't seem quite the same. And when you put all of those things together, most scholars today agree that that piece doesn't really belong in Scripture. Now, I don't want you to get distressed about that, okay? I don't want you to be upset because we don't lose anything. Unless you're part of the the sect of Pentecostalism that that focuses entirely on snake handling, and we're not, we're not that because I'm not doing that, right? So unless you're part of that, then you don't need to really worry about losing anything. And even if you are part of that, you don't really want to back up a whole doctrine and your whole basis of theology based on one verse in the Bible. But scholarship is part of our faith. That's a good thing. There are people out there that think faith and Christian faith and being part of, of a religion or spirituality means you turn your brain off, and that is just not the case. It's important that we study things well and that we use good scholarship and we use wisdom and we do all of those things and, and use our intelligence and use our brains. And I'm grateful for a God that has preserved his word for this long. And he's done it through people. I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful that we live in a day when, when Scripture is so accessible. You can get it in any language, and you can get it in, in different translations in the English, and you can um, get it digitally, or you can get it on paper. And for so many centuries, it just wasn't that accessible at all to the common person. And now it is. And so now we learn about these kinds of things. And so I don't want you to let it shake your faith that there's been a little controversy over that piece, Okay. I don't want you to do that because it means the fact that it's there and that it's written clearly in your Bible or that it's written right there that I'm telling you tells you that the people care enough to be very, very sure about what we call God's word. And that's integrity and that's accountability and to be honest about the parts that are complex. And it also tells you that the parts we are sure about, we're really sure about. We do have a really good handle on what the original Bible said and the parts that we're not sure of, we're honest about. And so, and so that's, so how many go, okay, I can live with that. Three of you, the rest of you don't care. Okay. I understand that, but I needed to take that side trip just to make sure that we understood that. So today we're going to look at Mark chapter 16 verses one to eight, and we're going to end at verse eight because that's our assumption that that's where Mark's gospel ends. So turn to the person beside you and say, okay, now she's really starting. Here we go. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. These are the same three women that were there at the end of Friday, at the end of the day when Jesus was crucified. These are the same ones. And they were there until sunset, and that's when the Sabbath began. These are the ones that Mark named as witnesses. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. He named them as witnesses so that they could testify and say, we were there 
we saw the truth of it. These are the ones who were there before the Sabbath began. The ones who were there with Joseph of Arimathea, and they were taking care of the body of Jesus and making sure it was cared for and it was put in a tomb. These are the ones who saw Jesus die. And they saw and were up close with his dead body. And they saw where it was that he was laid in the tomb. These are the ones. These are the ones that know because they saw it happen. And Mark names them again and puts in these details. And it's like he's saying, go ahead, ask them yourself. They were there. They saw it. That's who these three women are. And now it's early Sunday morning. And they're doing what needs to be done. They're doing the respectable thing, the expected thing. It's normal. Judaism in Jesus' day had kind of a two-stage two version of burial. You would take the body and, and it would be placed in a tomb for approximately a year. And then at the end of that year, um, the body would have decomposed and they would gather the bones up and they would wash the bones and they would place them in an ossuary. And so the body at the beginning of that first year was anointed with spices and oils and stuff in order to control the smell of decomposition. And so they're coming to the tomb. It's Sunday now. Jesus has been dead for 40 hours or so. And they're going, well, it's probably beginning to smell. And so, so that, that's what's happening. And women, the women and Joseph of Arimathea, they had done everything that, that they could do on Friday as fast as they could. They had, they had tried to, you know, wrap the body and do all that had to be done. But Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday night. And so when sundown hits, they can't do anything anymore. And so now they have been sitting through the Sabbath, the Saturday, and, and through this time of just, you know, agonizing, forced inactivity when you're not allowed to do anything and everything in you wants to just go and wants to do what needs to be done and you can't do it. You have to rest because that's what it's supposed to be. And so now it's Sunday morning and, and they, they can finally do something. Even if it's just meaning embalming the body of, of Jesus, that's what they're doing. And so, so the Sabbath is over, and they've bought spices, and it's early Sunday morning, and they're coming to properly take care of the, of the corpse of Jesus. So this is what they're doing. It's normal. It's the next step. It's expected, and it's, it's what needs to be done. And there's something comforting sometimes in doing what needs to be done. Sometimes when you're in a, in a crisis or you've been through a trauma, having the traditions and having the routines and, and understanding what's coming, that can be helpful. Because for some people, lots of us have had loved ones pass away, and we know how difficult that can be. And for some of us, knowing that, well, this is what happens, and this is the routine, and this is the next step, and this is what you do. For some of us, that becomes a bit of a comforting thing because you know and you understand and it helps you to process your grief and helps you to get through it. And so they are doing something. It needs to be done. It's the expected thing that needs to be done. It's maybe helping them with their grief. And by the way, I want you to notice that as they are coming, they are expecting to encounter a dead body. That's, that's their assumption. They don't, they don't have any expectation that Jesus will rise from the dead. They've bought the spices because they think they're coming to deal with a dead body. It's not occurring to them that anything different is going to happen. They're not looking at each other as they come along the road and go, you know, do you remember when he said something about three days and he would rise again? I wonder if that meant that he would come to life again. That is not the conversation they're having. If you had suggested it to them at that moment, they probably would have just looked at you in horror. 
How could you even say something like that? We watched him die. We saw the torture he went through. We saw how awful it was. And, and, and what, is, what is wrong with you that you would even say something like that? They are not thinking at all that they are coming. And they went and they bought spices. They got everything they needed to care for a dead body. The next verse says, And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Because, of course, they had seen Joseph roll the stone in front of the tomb. And it probably had been on a bit of a tiny bit of a slope. And it's there. It's a brand new tomb. And you put the body in. And then you push the, the stone down. And it's heavy. And it's big. And it's on a slope. And it rolls into place to seal it. Because that's what you do. It's not the kind of thing that opens and closes a, fl- a few times. It's there to protect the body. Partly to protect the body from grave robbers. Because sometimes valuables would be, would be buried with people and, you know, grave robbers would come and they would, they would rob it. And so, so this stone is there and the women know it's there and they're talking on the way going, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to, how are we going to push this back? And maybe, maybe they hadn't thought it through in their grief that didn't even occur to them until they were almost there. Or maybe they were just going, well, it doesn't matter. We're going to find a way, whether it takes a few of us, I don't know, but we'll figure it out when we get there. This has to be done. I don't know. But even when I I read this story to me with this verse it sounds like the way they told the story later you know so we were walking along and we were headed towards the tomb and and I said to Mary what are we going to do who's going to roll the stone away for, from us for us from the entrance of the tomb and then Salome said well maybe we can get somebody else or maybe the three of us together that's what it sounds like to me and then you go on and it says and looking up they saw that the stone had been rolled back It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Well, I guess so. It's understandable that they're alarmed. There's not supposed to be a young guy sitting in the tomb. It's creepy. It's weird. They walk in and they're expecting to see this dead body. And they're, who is he? What is he doing there? And they're, they're just, whoa. They're alarmed because they don't know who he is. They don't know if maybe this is a trap that's been set for them. Maybe the authorities that crucified Jesus and, and, and know where he's buried, maybe they set up a trap and they know that his followers are going to come and, and they're going to take the rest of his followers and take them off to be crucified. They don't know. Maybe he's a grave robber and they caught him in the middle of the act. And now because he's caught, he's going to turn around and he's going to get violent on them. They don't, they don't know. They're alarmed, understandably. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Yeah, okay. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. What? See the place where they laid him? Right there. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. What? <laughs> Have you ever had a time when you find yourself in this, in this situation, or you're in a conversation with somebody, and you're in the middle of talking to them or you're in the middle of this thing and it's not making sense and you're, and you're sitting there and you're trying to comprehend what on earth is happening and your brain is just going, 
What? Anybody ever been in a situation like, can I just tell you a couple of years ago, I came home from work to our house in, in Hamilton and uh, it was about 9.30 or quarter to 10 at night and it had been a long day and, and I came in and I came through the gate to our side door and I opened up the screen door and I had my, my key in my hand and I went to put my key in the lock on the inside door, you know, the big dead bolted one that's, that's, you know, the solid one and there was nowhere to put my key and I stood there with the screen door open and I'm, I'm holding the key and I'm, I'm looking and my door is on the floor. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm standing, I truly, if you had been watching me, you probably would have laughed because I'm still standing there trying to put my key somewhere. And then I stood there and I thought, oh, okay, uh, um, let me, this is a true story. I, maybe we've had a lot of company recently. And they've come and gone. And maybe there's someone staying in our house right now that I forgot is staying at our house. Still, the door probably shouldn't be on the floor. And I'm standing there with the key and I went, what? 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 And finally I pulled out my cell phone and I, I called 911 and they said hello. And I said, um, I, think, I think my house has been broken into. And they said, why do you think that? I go, my... My door's on the floor. <laughs> and they said to me, well, is the guy still in there? Do you know if there's... I said, I don't know. I haven't gone in. I'm not... I was alarmed, right? You sometimes get in a situation where you're standing and you're going, this does not compute. This is not comprehending in my brain. I don't understand what's happening. I'm putting my key where the door is supposed to be and there's no door. And I think that this is probably some of what was happening to these poor women who have just walked up to this tomb now where there's a young man sitting in there and they're alarmed and they're going, who is this? And what is he saying? What is it that he's talking about? He knows who we are. How does he know who we are? And, and he knows who, what, who we're here for. He knows that this is where Jesus is. And, and he knows how Jesus got here. And, and what? And he, and he knows he's talking about the disciples. And then he throws in and Peter, which means that he knows that Peter's a little bit on the outs with the disciples right now because it was a rough few days for him. And how, how does he know that? And, and then he's, and, and, and what's he, what's he pointing at as he says, see the place where they laid it? What? Yes. What? There was a body there. Where did that go? What, what happened to the body of Jesus? It's supposed to be there. And, and Galilee? What? Why is he talking about Galilee? This is Jerusalem. How does he know that we're from Galilee? Why is he telling us, you know, go ahead and go home? How does he know where we're from? And, and, and this guy goes, and then you will see him. See who? Just, just as he told you. Who? Who told us? Who told us? And and what is it that they told us? And then go tell the disciples. Tell them. What? What? They don't understand anything. None of it makes any sense at all. Can I just tell you that sentence? He is, he has risen. He is not here. That is not a sentence that computes at that moment. He is risen. He is not here. What? And so it says, and they went out and fled from the tomb, 
for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how Mark ends his gospel. Right there. It's not tidy. It's not reasonable. He doesn't tie up the loose ends. There's no happily ever after. We don't even see Jesus at the end of Mark's gospel. There's just this empty tomb. And there's a guy sitting in there who presumably is an angel, according to the other gospels. He's sitting inside. And there's these terrified, stunned women who just, they just take to their heels and they just run. They're in fear. The end. Say that with me. The end. Look at the person beside you and go, the end. That's the end. No wonder the early Christians wanted to tidy it up. (laughs) Mark, you can't just end it like that. You can't just leave people hanging. Why don't you put in, put in the other stuff, you know, like Matthew and Luke and John did. You got to throw some stuff in there and, and tidy it all up. Let people know that it was okay. Finish the story, Mark. But Mark, finish it there to the best of our knowledge. <laughs> and I don't know why. Maybe he just wanted to just leave us hanging just like they were. Because this is usually the part, you know, in the story when a good preacher is preaching this, this is the part where we call the worship team to come back up. And and we all sing this really nice song. And we smile at each other. And we go, he is risen. And we clap our hands. And then we close the service. And we move on. And we we just carry on with our lives. That is not what happened to these women. That's not what they did. Their experience, which is so close to the resurrection, is not like ours. When we talk about the resurrection, we get all joyful and we get all confident. We're like, yeah, right? The women, they're trembling, they're overwhelmed, and they flee. They just run in terror from the tomb. It's the same verb that Mark uses to describe the disciples fleeing just a couple chapters earlier. Tell everyone. I don't think so. Jesus had spent all that time telling them to stay quiet, don't make a scene. And clearly he had been right. They killed him. So why on earth are we going to go? And now, and now his body's gone and their senses are overloaded. And the last few days have just been, they've just been awful. They've been so traumatic. They've been way too much. And the women flee in fear and we're left standing at this empty tomb trying to figure out what we're supposed to do with it. Can I tell you something? Christian faith is terrifying. It's terrifying. You might not like that, but that is true. It was terrifying for those women not having any understanding at all of what was happening. And and we know from the other gospels and we know from history itself that eventually they did stop running. And eventually they did start breathing again. And eventually they did go to the disciples and tell them what had happened. And the disciples ran and they checked it out and they saw it for themselves. And we know that that Jesus was seen and he did hang around for another 40 days. And hundreds of people saw him and they all testified that he was alive. And let me tell you something. You don't just come back from something like that. You don't just sing a nice song and go, yay, and then go on with regular life. It changes everything. And Christian faith was terrifying for the early Christians, for the first ones that were followers of Jesus, especially those ones, you know, that probably were the recipients of Mark's gospel. They lived in Rome, and Rome was not exactly a safe place to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. Those ones that are reading Mark's gospel, they understand that it is terrifying to have faith. Christian faith is terrifying because they know that their choice might lead to persecution. It might lead to displacement and to being driven out of their homes. And it might lead to death for many of them. If they don't just sing a nice song 
and then carry on with life afterwards. Faith is a terrifying proposition. It's scary. It's something that calls for action when you don't have all the answers. Faith is something that calls for belief when you would rather have just a little bit more proof. It's not safe. It's not routine. It's not calm. It's not respectable. It's high risk because you're putting your faith in something that you can't even see. And it's, it's demanding because it calls for a whole life commitment for everything to change, nothing less. And it's terrifying because no matter how much we see that Jesus was a real human with a sense of humor and who slept and who did all of those other things, even though he was all of that, it's terrifying because as it turns out, he's also all-powerful God. You don't just sing a nice song about that and then get on with regular life. And there's an author out there, her name is Annie Dillard, and she, she talks about this a little bit, talks about how ludicrous it is, this idea that Christian faith is nice and safe and lovely and pretty. And she, she, I got a few quotes from her that I just love reading, and they're a little bit tongue-in-cheek, so brace yourself, and a little bit sarcastic, but this is one of the things she said, why do we people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? Ouch. And then she said in this other place, she said, on the whole, I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for God may draw us out to where we can never return. Faith is terrifying. You can't return from a risen Christ and just carry on with your day. And the women who saw that empty tomb, they got past their fear, but they spent their lives, the rest of their lives, with the reality that Jesus was alive and that Jesus was God and that Jesus had changed everything. And Michael Card, in, in, he has this book that he's written, it's called Biblical Imagination, just fantastic. And he talks about the impact of the way that Mark ends his gospel and, and why he would do it that way, why he would end it so abruptly. And I'd like to share that part with you today. I'd like to read you an excerpt of what Michael Card has had to say. And it's not going to be on the screens. And so maybe if it helps you, just close your eyes and let the words wash over you. Let it, let it just impact you. This is what he says. The scene outside the tomb with the women fleeing in fear and amazement is a single moment that links the first followers of Jesus who had actually seen and heard him with you and me. Mark means for us to share in the emotionality of this final scene. In a sense, every other moment had been leading up to this one. It's the supreme moment like others earlier, where believing comes before seeing and faith is born before the appearance of proof. There is a luminous moment when belief and trust 
are given before the light of proof shines. Indeed, proof matters and will sometimes come. But Jesus demands that we believe before the proof. So this is the moment to which Mark has brought us, at which Mark leaves us. And as the three astonished women flee from the empty tomb, not having yet seen Jesus, they take to their heels in obedience to the angel and they go and tell the disciples. The empty tomb is not the final proof. It's only a piece of evidence. Someone might have stolen the body as the women had feared. Only Jesus is the final proof. And off stage in Mark's gospel, he's waiting for them. And when at last, exhausted, they come to the cowering disciples, the women will be privileged to speak for the first time those words on which the faith of millions is founded. He is risen. And like Peter's confession, which Jesus said the church is founded on, the women's words were spoken before the final proof. By not recording those words himself, Mark corners us. He leaves us out of breath, running beside the women, perhaps trying to keep up with them. And he hopes we too will be left trembling and astonished at having read his testimony of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's terrifying. It's life-changing. The only question is, what are you going to do with it? And so next week, we celebrate 100 years of this church in this city. We're pretty respectable. And we try to make sure that there aren't too many terrifying moments. We want to give space for everybody. And we understand everybody's on a spiritual journey. We just want to make that as, as palatable and as possible as we can wherever you're at. But there comes a point when you have to face that crisis moment. And you have to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. And, and it doesn't matter. You're not going to have all the answers because faith never has all the answers. Wisdom says, search it out, put real effort into studying it and understanding it and, and learning. And that's good. But then faith eventually calls for a choice. And I'm wondering today, maybe there's some that are ready to make that choice today even though it's really, really terrifying. And so I'm going to ask if everyone would bow your heads, close your eyes, just to give some privacy around here, just to take a little of the terror out of that moment. And I'm wondering if there are any here, and you're here in church today, and maybe it's your first time, or maybe you've been here before, and you've been just listening to all of this and kind of exploring all of it, and it's hitting you today, and you go, you know what? I'm ready to make that choice. And you put some time and you've put some thought into understanding and into learning and into studying and because and, that's wisdom and you don't have all the answers, but you're ready to take a leap of faith. If that's you, I want you to know how terrifying I know that it is. That's okay. But if that's you, with everyone's head is bowed, everyone's eyes closed, would you just raise a hand because I want to be able to pray with you this morning. Yep. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. All over all over. Thank you. Anybody in the balcony? Just raise a hand. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Isn't that amazing? Thank you. It's terrifying. I know it's scary. 
but you can't just walk away unchanged. And so I'm going to invite those of you that have raised your hand. I'm going to actually invite everybody all together to pray a prayer together because we want to stand with you. There's nothing just individual about this leap. It's, it's all of us together. And so I'm going to re- just say this simple prayer. I'm going to ask if everyone would repeat it with me right out loud. Dear Jesus, this feels a bit crazy. I'm not sure of everything, but I'm sure enough. I want to follow you. I want to live for you. Jesus, you died for me, but you're alive. Forgive my sins. Wash away anything that gets in the way. Come into my life and make me new. Thank you. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, I want you to know that it matters whether you feel anything or not. It matters. You are a person that Jesus loves and that Jesus died for and that Jesus has just made you part of his family. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, I'm going to ask ministry people, some of our elders, if they would come to the front right now right now, so that if you are one of those ones that prayed the prayer this morning, at the end of this service, you have somebody you can come to. I want you to tell somebody, tell somebody who brought you, or tell one of the people here at the front so we can pray with you, and we can reassure you, and we can just give you some help along the way. I'm going to ask if everyone would stand this morning. Everyone, just stand. I'm going to close in prayer. God, I'm so grateful for the number of people this morning that have said, yes, I want to take that leap. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would bless them and that you would cover them and that you would help them as they've taken this leap, God, would you catch them? (laughs) And would you help them to walk out of here this morning knowing that something has changed? They don't have all the answers and and there's a lot to learn, but, but a lot has changed. Something has changed and they have met with the risen Lord. God, I pray that you would seal that work in them and you would help them to grow as followers of Jesus and, and move in their journey and move in their growth towards maturity as a Christian. And Lord, for the rest of us that are here, I'm asking that you would help us to carry Jesus well out of here today. Would you help us to take the risen Lord out into our neighborhood, out to our workplace, out to our families, out to all the places we spend our time, to our school, to our, our leisure time, whatever it is that we do. Would you help us to bring the risen Jesus Christ into that space? Help us to do good. Help us to love each other and help us to reveal Jesus in everything we do and say this week. God, I pray that your blessing and your safety would be over each one of us, that you'd bring us back safely next weekend. Help us to honor you with everything that we do this week. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and everyone said together, amen. God bless you. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next Sunday. Make sure you go down to the Connect Cafe and make sure you come back next weekend for all the 100th anniversary stuff. If you want to receive prayer, come on to the front. There's people here that will pray with you and we'd be happy to connect with you. God bless you. Have a fantastic week.